You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. Join with me in turning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. This morning our focus is on verses 31 through 35, but I want us to read beginning at verse 26 to hear these verses in their context. Matthew 26, beginning with verse 26. Now while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, He broke it. And giving it to the disciples, He said, Take, eat, this is My body. And when He had taken a cup and given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now this is where we are this morning, verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter answered and said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night... Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Lord, it's a joy to gather with your church. I thank you this morning for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for every good thing that you have done and are doing in this congregation. I thank you for all that we've already enjoyed together this morning from the study, the ABF classes, to the time of prayer and scripture reading and the singing of your praises. Every part of this morning has been a joy to our souls and a a means that you use to strengthen us and preserve us and keep us to the very end. And we give you praise. And now, Lord, we have gathered around Your Word, and we ask for Your blessing on this time of preaching. We joyfully confess that our only adequacy in this next hour is from You. Without You, the Word will not go forth in the way that it should. Without You, it will not be received in the way that it should. And so we look to You, even as we have just sung, we look to the head of this church, we look to the shepherd of this church, we look to the Savior of this church, and ask Your blessing upon this time of preaching. May You work in our hearts in such a way that Your people are indeed fed, that we are edified where we need it, Lord, corrected, strengthened. We're also mindful that some will hear me today who don't know You, and we ask that this might be a great day of salvation for them, that this day their eyes would be opened and they would be brought to repentance and faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. We will give you thanks for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. 
One of the things that we delight in as we read the Word of God is that the Bible gives us the truth about the people of God. I know you see this. I know you recognize this as you read your Bible. The Bible never stops short of telling us everything that is true about God's people. That includes the negative things about God's people. Same is true with the apostles. God gives us the truth about the apostles. We see their weaknesses. At times, we hear their foolishness. We see them stumble. The question, however, that I want you to consider this morning is when you see that, when you see the Word of God's honest presentation of the people of God and thinking this morning about the apostles of Christ, how do you see yourself when you look at them? How do we see ourselves when we see the weakness, the foolishness, the stumbling of God's people? How do we see ourselves? Do we see ourselves as superior to them? Do we think that we are above the kind of foolish thoughts and foolish words and bad decisions that we sometimes see in them? And just as we see them compare themselves among themselves, and we sometimes laugh at that as they are debating about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. As we see them compare themselves among themselves, do we recognize that sometimes we not only are comparing ourselves with ancient disciples, but just like they did, we compare ourselves with contemporary disciples. We compare ourselves with those whom we know well, and we compare ourselves with disciples that we don't know very well. We see them from a distance, but we see them and we compare ourselves with them. Do we look at others and think that we are strong? Do we look at others and think that we are wise? Do we look at sometimes the famous failures of fellow disciples and think to ourselves, I would not stumble in the ways that they have? This morning we come to some verses that remind us that no disciple ever saved himself no disciple ever saved himself. The story of a disciple is not the story of a hero. The story of every disciple is the story of someone who has been rescued, saved, delivered, and then kept. We are not being kept in our own strength. The Lord has rescued us and He is the one who is keeping us. So that every true disciple in this room should know that all praise, all glory must accord with what you read, for example, in Jude verse 24, which says, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. This not only belongs to Him now, it has always belonged to Him. It will always belong to Him. All glory, all majesty, all praise goes to God because He is the one who has saved us and He's the one who keeps us from stumbling and He's the one who presents us one day blameless in His own presence. 
The story of disciples is not the story of heroes. The story of disciples is the story of people who've been rescued. This is so clearly on display in the night when the great shepherd told his disciples that they would soon fail him. Jesus tells them, you will fail me, but I will triumph and I will keep you. You will fail me, but I will keep you. So that on this night when there's this glaring failure on the part of the disciples, there is at the same time the glorious dignity and strength that we see in our Savior. So this morning we think about the strength of the shepherd who will be struck down. The strength of the shepherd who will be struck down. We'll look at this under three headings. I'll just give them to you as we come to them. The first one is this. We see the great shepherd informs. The great shepherd informs. Beginning at verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. As we saw in the previous verses, they've made their way from the upper room. They're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And as they are on their way, Jesus is telling them what is coming. The great shepherd is also the divine prophet. So that he's not just warning them in general terms, he is telling them in specific terms, even down to the number of times that Peter is going to deny him. Three times you are going to deny me. To that level, to the level of specific terms, he's, he's telling them exactly what is coming. What is coming? What does He tell them? Well, He tells them that the shepherd will be struck down. I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. Jesus is quoting Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. And if you look at that verse in its context, beginning with Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1, what you're going to find is that the prophet Zechariah is given a burden that tells of Israel's ultimate deliverance and salvation, looking forward to kingdom promises, the fulfillment of kingdom promises. But as is not uncommon with Old Testament prophecy, you find a mixture of some things that are nearer than others. So the ultimate salvation, deliverance of Israel, the future kingdom with Messiah reigning, but as that burden is given through Zechariah, you find elements of both the first coming of Messiah and the second coming of Messiah. And as Zechariah describes the first coming of Christ, he describes this shepherd being struck down and his sheep being scattered. What's amazing when you read Zechariah 13.7 is that the sword that strikes the shepherd is called forth by the Word of God. That is, the sword is the Lord's judgment on this shepherd. Reminds us of what Peter declared on the day of Pentecost, which is what Jesus suffered, He suffered at the hands of sinful men, and those sinful men are fully responsible to their for their rejection of the Messiah and what they did to the Messiah, and yet what they did simply was the carrying out of what God ordained from all eternity for our salvation. 
God's sovereign plan is executed, His will is done, and yet sinners are responsible for their part in it. Acts 2.22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Those who crucified Him are sinners, lawless, responsible. But what has happened was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's what Zechariah 13.7 is declaring as well. Peter goes on to say, God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. So Jesus is telling His disciples that He is that shepherd that Zechariah 13.7 speaks of, and they will be scattered. They are His sheep, and they will be scattered. So He informs them that the shepherd is going to be struck down. At the same time, He informs them that they are going to fail Him. Verse 31, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of Me. This night, the sheep stumbling. They scatter. They will all leave Him because of what happens to Jesus. Fall away is a form of the word scandalizo. They will stumble. They will fall. They will fail because of Jesus. He's talking about a failure on their part. Leon Morris commented that he said, it's not easy to find an adequate translation for the verb I've rendered brought down. Some translations have fall away. Others lose faith and still others take offense at me. But Jesus is not saying that they will really fall away or abandon faith in Him. He is indicating that they will have a grievous lapse. Even though it will be a lapse out of character, they will fail Him. But that does not mean that they will cease to be disciples or that they will no longer trust Him or for that matter that they will be offended at Him. Linsky commented, this is still Morris, Linsky commented, the disciples took no offense because of Jesus. They were simply caught, trapped, and overwhelmed by what happened to Jesus. This is written in Scripture, so it must be fulfilled. But there is comfort in that thought too, for it makes clear that what will happen will be in fulfillment of the divine purpose. So even though our Lord is telling His disciples of their failure, He's also putting it in the context of the fulfillment of Scripture. And as Morris points out, that should have been a comforting thought, even as they were grieved at the thought of their failure. William Hendrickson said this, he said, "...in all of you shall become untrue to me." The basic meaning of the verb that's used is, as always, become trapped or ensnared in connection with Jesus. And because of their own weakness, these men would be lured into sin, in this specific case, probably referring to becoming untrue to their master. This would happen to all of them, says Jesus. So he says he's going to be struck down. They are going to stumble. They are going to be entrapped. They are going to be ensnared. They are going to fail him. And indeed, if you just look down to verse 55, notice what is going to happen later. At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me? as you would against a robber. Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place in order that the Scriptures of the prophets would be fulfilled. 
Next statement, then all the disciples left him and fled. So what is he informing them about? What is he telling them about in advance? The shepherd will be struck down. The sheep will be scattered. Third, he tells them the shepherd will be raised up. Even as he tells them about their failure, he also tells them of his triumph. Verse 32, but after I have been raised... After I've been raised, the Son of God offering Himself as our sin sacrifice, the Father pleased to crush Him. Isaiah 53, verse 5, But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53, verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It is the will of God to crush his own son because in this way God will save sinners. The son will suffer for us, but he will not ultimately be abandoned. He will be raised from the dead by his father, by the power of the Spirit of God. The Son's perfect obedience will mean our salvation and the honoring of His Father, and then the Father will honor His Son by raising Him from the dead and restoring Him to glory. Peter declared this as well, Acts 2.23, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. That's a promise made to David's offspring. That's a promise made to the Messiah, to the Son of God. As Peter goes on to declare, you can still find David's grave, but the tomb is empty. God is speaking of His Son. So the shepherd struck down the sheep, scattered. The shepherd raised up. He also informs them that the sheep will be gathered up. Verse 32, but after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. I'm going to meet you again in Galilee. And again, this is indeed what happens after the resurrection of Jesus. But in these words in which he's preparing them and informing them, I mean, think about the glorious assurance and encouragement that is in this information. Because if he's going to meet with them again in Galilee, that means he has been raised. But that also means that their faith has been preserved. Yes, they're going to fail him grievously, but that's not the end. They will meet with him again in Galilee, which speaks of the perseverance of their faith, the preservation of their faith. You're going to fail me, but I'm going to keep you. You're going to fail me, but I'm going to hold on to you. Hendrickson also said this, he said, interpreting this in the light of prophecy and of the New Testament, we can say that it was Jehovah Himself who laid upon the mediator all our iniquities, Isaiah 53, verse 6. 
It was he who struck him down, bruised him, put him to grief, made his soul an offering for sin. It was God the Father who spared not his own son, Romans 8.32. As indicated in verse 56, the sheep were scattered, they fled, were going to flee in every direction. The beauty in all this is not only that Jesus loved them all the same, but also that this very prediction would serve the purpose of bringing the scattered sheep together again once they reflected on the fact that their master had lovingly forewarned them. What Hendrickson is saying, and he's right, is not only is this information given in advance, it's actually a means of God. It is a way that the Savior will use to regather His sheep. They will remember these promises that were given before He ever suffered on the cross. Remember the fact that, that His resurrection was told to them in advance and that He would meet with them again in Galilee. The very words that now are grieving them are actually being given to them for their good because God will use it to keep them in faith and to regather them with their shepherd. So the first thing we see in our text is the great shepherd informed. He informs his sheep. But now we see a second thing, verses 33 and 34. The great shepherd corrects. The great shepherd corrects. Verse 33, but Peter answered... And said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, that this very night, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Our Lord tells them what is coming, what becomes clear, very next verse, they don't receive that well. They don't receive that well. And immediately on display is Peter's overestimation. That's what we see in verse 33, Peter's overestimation. But I want you to note that when you get to the end of verse 35, the Bible says all the disciples said the same thing too. So Peter, once again, the leader among the twelve, he is their spokesman. He is the one giving voice to what was an attitude found in all of them. It's not just Peter who doesn't receive these words well. The whole company of the disciples don't receive this information well. And what is on display is the fact that Peter doesn't know himself very well. What he says he means, he means it sincerely, but he's going to eventually be proven wrong. I would remind you that Luke gives us a fuller version of what went on, and we find that Jesus actually had prepared Peter with some additional words. Luke 22, verse 31 says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Now, thinking about what Matthew gives us here and then what Luke gives us in Luke 22, I want you to recognize that what Peter is doing here is absolutely ignoring what Jesus is telling him and disputing with what he doesn't ignore. So he ignores a lot of what Jesus tells him, and then what he actually hears he takes issue with. He doesn't agree. He disputes with Jesus. 
What does Peter ignore? Considering Matthew 26 and Luke 22, what does Peter ignore? First of all, he ignores what he was told about the enemy's design. Jesus has told Peter, Peter, you're dealing with something here more than just me and you. The great enemy of your soul has asked permission. He's been granted permission to sift you like wheat. You're involved in something, Peter, greater than you, which should, of course, have immediately humbled Peter and brought about even a sense of desperation for the mercy of God. But he doesn't even hear it, it seems. He just moves right past it. He makes no commentary on it. Imagine that. Your Lord telling you of something that's happened in the unseen realm that involves you, and you don't even comment on it. So he ignores that. Second, he ignores what he's been told of the shepherd's intercession. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus tells Peter that he's interceded for him. And that on the other side of his failure, the failure will be used as a way that Peter can then strengthen other people, strengthen his brethren. This, of course, means not only failure, but repentance. Jesus is telling Peter in advance, you will fail, but you're going to repent after you've turned again, after you've repented. Then you're going to strengthen your brethren out of your failure. But Peter doesn't even comment on that. He just totally ignores it. Doesn't say a word about it. He also ignores, here in our text, in Matthew 26, he ignores the fact that Jesus is telling him something about all the disciples. Verse 31, you will all fall away because of me. He does not accept Peter. He doesn't say, accept you, Peter. He says, every single one of you will stumble on this night. Every single one of you will fail me on this night, including you, Peter. I mean, Peter's listening rightly. That includes you. But now Peter, th this is one of those statements he hears, and he doesn't, so he's not ignoring it, but he is disputing with it. And he disputes with it in a way that he exalts himself. This is why I say this is Peter's overestimation. He exalts himself. He actually sets his loyalty not, over, not only over against what Jesus has said, but over against the rest of his brethren. In fact, he says, notice what he says, Verse 33, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Think about what he's saying. He's saying, Andrew might, John might, go, go down the list. I could see some of these other guys doing this, Lord, but not me. I will never do this. So not only is he disputing with his Lord, but he is actually treating his brethren with disdain. He is exalting himself above them. He ignores what he's been told of his Savior's triumph. Jesus talks about 
resurrection. After I've been raised, verse 32, Peter doesn't even comment on that. doesn't comment on the resurrection. I'm going to go before you to Galilee. He doesn't comment on the regathering in Galilee. Most of what his Lord is saying, he doesn't even hear. But what he does hear, he disputes. And what becomes clear is he has been wounded, not just emotionally. They're all made to grieve over this thought that they would fail their master. But he's not just been wounded emotionally, he's been wounded in the realm of his pride. He understood that the Lord dealt with him as the leader among the twelve. He saw that. They saw that. And so his thought is, having been treated that way by his Lord, if everyone else should fall prey to this, Lord, I won't, which means he ignores Christ's perfect knowledge of him. He really thinks he knows himself better than Jesus knows him. What does Jesus do? Verse 34, he corrects him. Peter's overestimation, verse 33, Christ's correction, verse 34, Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you this very night, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Notice he corrects Peter with great solemnity. He begins once again with, those word, with that word, truly. Truly I say to you. What I'm telling you, you can count on. What I'm telling you is certain. He corrects Peter urgently. He says, this very night. We're not talking about something in the far distant future. It's right upon us. It's going to happen in just a bit, just a while. He corrects Peter with specifics. Not only does he say this very night, but he says, verse 34, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. You'll deny that you know me. Three times. Night watch is numbered. The third watch of the night, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., was referred to as cock crowing. The third watch of the night. Gospel of Mark makes that clear. Mark 13, verse 35. Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, at cock crowing, or in the morning. There are the four watches. Cock crowing, the third watch of the night. But in this case, Jesus is not saying, you know, before 3 a.m. That's not what he's saying. He is speaking in literal terms. Peter, you will deny me three times before you hear a rooster crow. And you move down in our chapter to verse 69. Notice what you see there. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also are with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, 
before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So he notes, our Lord notes, not only the, the nearness of Peter's failure before the night is over. In fact, Peter, before the rooster crows. But he also notes the persistence of Peter's failure. He won't fail once. He won't fail twice. He's going to fail three times. This is something he's going to persist in. He knows what he's doing is wrong, and yet out of fear and weakness, he's entrapped by it. He succumbs to it, just like Jesus said. So the great shepherd informs. The great shepherd corrects. Third, verse 35, the great shepherd is silent. The great shepherd is silent. Peter, how do you respond to this? I mean, truly I say to you, Peter, how do you respond? Verse 35, Peter says to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. Can you see at times, I confess, I don't fully understand how this can happen, except I know us, so I know how it can happen. But how do you... How do you hear the teaching of Jesus? How do you witness the miracles of Jesus? How do you say what you say, Peter, about the person of Jesus? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. How do you know all of this? And he tells you something is about to happen, and you dispute with him. How do you do this? So even the promise that Jesus just gave him, truly I say to you, it doesn't slow him down, and it doesn't slow the other disciples down. So what does Jesus do now? He does nothing. He says nothing. He just goes on to the Garden of Gethsemane. He is silent. Why? Because he knows they're going to get the lesson. You can argue with him. You can dispute with him. You can deny it. You don't know yourself the way he knows you, but you know what? He doesn't have to keep telling you that. You're going to meet with that experientially. Experience will be your teacher. The, the inability to hear Jesus, as I said earlier, it's all over this passage because Jesus speaks of their failure, but He also speaks of their restoration. They don't hear that. There's no comfort in them, just grief. There's no assurance in them, just arguing. He tells of His death and resurrection. They only hear Him about His death. He tells of their failure and their regathering. They only hear him about their failure. And then even what they do hear, they don't believe. What do you learn from that? You learn that their failure begins with their willingness to dispute with their Lord. Their failure begins with their inability to hear their Lord. They don't listen to him carefully and they don't believe him fully. And this contributes to the very thing that he tells them is coming. The great shepherd informs, the great shepherd corrects, and then finally the great shepherd chooses silence. Now let me finish this morning with three points of application for us. First of all, do you realize that our shepherd's means for our growth is sometimes silence? Sometimes the Lord leaves us to the hard teacher of experience because we refuse to hear Him. We won't listen to Him. Therefore, He allows us to be taught by a much more cruel teacher than His, than his voice. 
and that is by our failures. At some point, if someone won't listen, you have to leave them to learn it the hard way. Now, I'm not ruling out the reality of family discipline and church discipline. I'm not ruling that out at all. But there are some issues, as you know, that don't really fall into the realm of church discipline. But you still see that stubbornness, don't you? You see that stubbornness in a person. People who love him or her, trying to help them, trying to tell them, trying to teach them, they won't listen. So at some point, what must we do? We must just take a step back and say, Lord, I leave them to you. This isn't a matter for discipline, but they are not willing to see. They are not willing to listen. So I leave them to you knowing that you are faithful to teach your people what they don't want to listen to. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 7 says this, And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. A father warning his son about a promiscuous woman. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembly of the congregation. What is the writer of Proverbs saying? Son, listen, if you won't listen to me, one day you'll still learn the lesson but it will break your heart that you did not listen to me. You will so wish that you had. You will find yourself in circumstances you wish you had never arrived in, and the reason you will be there is because you would not listen. Is there someone hearing me today that like these disciples, you are unwilling to hear the voice of your Lord, therefore one day you're going to meet with the rod of your Lord, if indeed you are saved. You're going to meet with the rod of your Lord because you will not here. Proverbs 19.29 says, judgments are prepared for scoffers and blows for the back of fools. Proverbs 17.10 says, a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. How do you know a man who has wisdom versus a man who's a fool? Well, the man who has wisdom can listen, but the man who is a fool, you, you, you can hit him a hundred times, he still doesn't learn the lesson. So sometimes our shepherd, just like with his disciples, he deals with us in a way that involves a kind of silence. You will not listen to my voice. You will learn the lesson the hard way. Second, our shepherd's majesty. When we see this text, what do we learn? Our shepherd's majesty is seen in his loneliness. Jesus will go through this alone. We're going to see tonight... We get to the Garden of Gethsemane, our Lord in His real humanness desires for His disciples to be with Him in His moment of trial, and yet they continue to fall asleep. He goes through this alone. And I thought John MacArthur made an outstanding point about this. Listen to what he says. He says, skeptics are inclined to ask such questions as, what kind of leader is this whose followers all leave him in the time of his greatest need? What kind of leader is it who has so little control 
over those under him that he cannot keep them from running away when the battle gets hot? Have not many men heroically stood their ground for lesser causes and in the face of greater danger? How could one who made such great claims as Jesus have been such a poor judge and builder of men? But Matthew reveals how in the purpose of God the disciples' failure actually enhances and intensifies the grandeur of our Lord's achievement. By way of contrast, their impotence served to magnify His power. Their unfaithfulness served to magnify His faithfulness. And their dishonor served to magnify His majesty. We look at Jesus and we see His disciples failing Him in total. And yet there He goes to the cross all alone. You will fail me, but I will save you. You will fail me, but I will preserve you. I will be raised. We will be regathered. Your failure magnifies His faithfulness. We see that in our own case, don't we? Do you see that in your own case? How often you fail Him, and yet He never fails you. He is always faithful, even when we are unfaithful. And in that way, He is magnified. Which is my third and final observation. Our Savior's means for our growth is sometimes silence. He leaves us to the rod. We won't listen to His voice. His majesty is seen in His loneliness. He saved us alone. Third point, our shepherd's saving work is magnified by our impotence. We look at this scene and we're not in doubt, are we? We were not saved by a company of men. We were saved by one. Jesus saved us. He saved His men and He saved all of us. And He saved us all by Himself. The disciples all failed, but Jesus did not fail. They didn't come to His rescue. He rescued them and He rescues us. So that by this passage, our overestimation is shattered. We're, we're like Peter. We overestimate ourselves. But these verses shatter that overestimation. What is your story? We talk about our love for Jesus and we truly love Him, but these verses make clear we're not saved by our love for Jesus. Because if left to ourselves, our love fails Him. Your love for Jesus could never save you. Your determination for Jesus could never save you. Peter is determined. He's sincere. I don't care if I have to go to prison or die. I will not fall away. But he does. He does fall away. His determination couldn't save him. His sincerity, our sincerity, could never save us. But I really mean it. I know you really mean it. But you really can't save yourself, you see. Your love can't save you. Your determination can't save you. Your sincerity can't save you. Your claims cannot save you. Peter speaks once again these boastful words, but his words prove untrue, and Christ's words are perfectly true. We're not saved by our profession. Our Savior saved us. And after saving us, He then shepherds us. 
And He shepherds us in a way that He makes use of even our worst moments. He makes use of their failure in advance for their regathering. He makes use of Peter's failure for the strengthening of his brothers. And in the same way, Jesus has saved us, Jesus keeps us, and in our failures, even in our failures, our greatest failures, our most glaring failures, our most grievous failures, He takes those. And because He is our great shepherd, He uses those not only to strengthen us, but to strengthen others. What do we see in our verses? We see the strength of the shepherd who will be struck down. How will Christ be glorified in our lives? How will He be glorified in this church? When we increasingly understand that the story is not us, it's Him. It's Him from beginning to end. That we have not and do not save ourselves, not in any sphere of our salvation, even in progressive sanctification, even though we are active and there is this synergistic work going on in our spiritual growth, if He doesn't sustain us every step we take, we fall. So that from beginning to end, our story is Christ. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. My only boast is in Christ. And on this night, when they would fail, they learned that He would not. And so we join with Jude in saying that all majesty and glory and dominion and authority belongs to Him, to whom it has belonged from all eternity and now and for forever, because He is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before His own presence, which will demonstrate His love to us that was unearned, His grace to us that is amazing, His strength that saved us despite our weakness. And in that we rejoice. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank You for the glory of Christ. Thank You, Lord, for Your faithfulness to us. A faithfulness that brought us to You and then a faithfulness that keeps us. When in our own strength we could never keep ourselves. We joyfully agree that we are not saved by our love for You. We're not saved by our determination toward You. We're not saved by our claims. Our salvation is explained by our Savior from beginning to end, and in Him we glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.